Hey, let me pray this morning to get started. God, thank you. Uh, That wasn't God. That was the sound system. (laughs) Let me pray. God, thank you this morning uh, for uh, this church, and thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would speak clearly this morning. God, I pray that you would help me to make it clear as it ought to be. God, I pray that you would uh, be in our time together. And help us to understand your word and to live out of it. God, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, our church staff was at a missions conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Brother Daryl and I were at a table with some other missionaries and church leaders from around the world. And uh, by God's providence, one of the men that we just happened to sit at a table with in our group uh, was a missionary with the IMB And it took a little bit for us to figure out where he was and what he did, but it didn't take long, and we realized he was a missionary uh, to North Korea. And you can understand partly why he did not want to share that information with us, uh, because he, I don't remember his name, I don't think you do either, probably. He probably didn't tell us his real name, um, because he feared for his life. Uh, He didn't live in North Korea, but he was actively connected to Christians and churches there. And as I sat in my little East Texas uh, seat of being a youth pastor at the time, and I listened to this guy talk about his experience, his trials, his difficulties, his faith, man, I was blown away, right? Because this man followed Jesus at a great cost. The cost of being a Christian in North Korea is likely death, uh, for sure imprisonment. Um, And that's not just true in North Korea. That's true for Christians all around the world. We call it the persecuted church. Um, that's not true here in our freedom bubble in East Texas, right? We, we are live streaming the service on the public internet for anyone to watch. We have no fear for what we might say this morning. But there are Christians all around the world, including West Africa, where we're trying to plant churches where it is not good for you to be a Christian, to identify with Christ. There will be persecution and opposition to you if you stand up. Uh, According to some research done by organizations like uh, Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs, there are about 300 million Christians that face high levels of persecution in the world today. That's one out of eight Christians that live in a very hostile environment to being a Christian. Uh, That's one out of six Christians in Africa. That's two out of five Christians in Asia. Uh, This organization out of the UK called Open Doors, in 2020, uh, for one year, they were able to document and confirm 4,700 plus Christians that were killed for their faith, 4,500 plus churches that were attacked for their faith, 4,200 plus Christians that were arrested for their faith, and over 1,700 that were abducted. Now, if you know anything about the world, these numbers are not the full picture. This is the ones that they can document. The reality is the church is persecuted. Not here in Huntington, Texas, but it is all around the world. To identify with Christ doesn't come with a badge of honor. The church has opposition, the gospel has opposition, and the church is persecuted. The top ten most dangerous countries in the world to be a Christian, to identify with Christ today are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, India, and Saudi Arabia. 
But yet, there are Christians in those places. There are churches in those places, underground and in the open. And if nothing else encourages you today, let it be that. That there are Christians in even Saudi Arabia and Yemen and all these places where it is not good for business to be identified with Christ. And, and the fact is, in those places, in some of those places, the church grows faster. Let that be <laughs> a convicting to us today, that the church in these persecuted places sometimes grows faster and broader and wider than here in the free West, where we have no fear to stand up and say that Jesus is Lord. We have no social uh, anxiety to say that Jesus died and rose again. They fear for their lives every day, and yet in some of these places, the church continues to grow. And as we talk about this in the book of Acts, how God builds his church, one of the major themes that comes up is persecution. It's all throughout the book. In fact, I've got way too much to say today, and I didn't even get down what I needed to, right? But we would be wrong to, to assume when we read the book of Acts that the church just, it just kind of blew up. Jesus rose from the dead. He gave them the spirit. And man, it just it was awesome, right? Easy roads and everything's pink flowers and rainbows and butterflies and all that stuff. Just good feelings all around, right? No, no. The church grew in the midst of persecution. And that's true then. That's true all throughout church history. And that's true today. That the church does face opposition, but God continues to build the church. Almost every New Testament book, I went and looked this week, references or teaches on persecution or suffering. It is a common theme in every letter. And I think we miss it because we don't live in that world. We don't, we don't face opposition for being a Christian. We can stand openly. It's, again, it's good for business. It's good for social status to claim to know Christ here but Jesus told us that, that if they killed him, the master, they would surely kill his followers, right? Jesus talked about it. The, the, the gospel writers talked about it. Paul talks about it. Peter's, other New Testament writers talk about persecution over and over because it was a present reality for the church. It was the, the environment that the church grew in. It's the soil that it's surrounded in. And so it would be wrong of us as American East Texas Christians to assume that everything's going to go well. We are not promised health, wealth, favor, prosperity in everything that we do, as much as many false teachers will try to peddle. We are not promised full acceptance and full success, and every venture we do is going to be met with hurrahs by the culture. No, we're promised what? Opposition. This doesn't mean that God's against us or that everything we do is going to fail. But it does mean that we will face opposition. The message that we proclaim stands in direct contrast to what the world believes. We say, give up your life because Jesus died for you. The world says, hold on to it. Go get what's yours. What we proclaim stands in direct opposition to the church. And so there will be persecution. Today I want to ask and answer three questions. And uh, there's note sheets on the end of your pew now. I've made these, and they stress me out, okay? Because if I get a note sheet, I want to try to fill in the blanks before the preacher gets there, right? I'm trying to guess what the answers are. So if the note sheet stresses you out, flip it over, use the blank side, or don't touch it at all. But if the note sheet helps you, use it. Uh, I don't like it, but maybe it'll help some of you track what we're going. 
So let's ask and answer three questions today. One, how, did the, how were the disciples persecuted in the book of Acts? Second, how did God use persecution to build his church? And then third, how should we respond to persecution and suffering? So let's look at first. How were the disciples persecuted in the book of Acts? There's a number of examples of this, too many for us to read, but they were arrested for their faith. It means they were put in prison. They were chained and cuffed and unjustly uh, jailed for, for their faith, not because they broke the law, but because they believed in Jesus. Peter and John in chapter 4 were arrested for preaching in, uh, Jesus and the resurrection. The apostles in chapter 5 were arrested for preaching and performing miracles, for helping people. Uh, Saul, before he becomes Paul, was, was imprisoning many in chapter 8. He was putting them in prison simply for claiming Christ. Peter was arrested by Herod for being a leader of the church. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, taken all the way to Rome, and all kinds of things. But let's read one for Paul and Silas in chapter 16. He just referenced it in the, in the baptistry this morning. Paul and Silas were arrested for casting out a demon. Here's what it says, starting in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, this is Paul and Silas, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I don't know what you expect a demon to say to you, but she's proclaiming the truth. <laughs> that uh, these are the men who tell you the way to be saved. In verse 18, it says, And this she kept doing for many days, and Paul having become greatly annoyed, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The disciples are persecuted by being arrested. The disciples are also beaten and physically attacked. There's a number of examples in this in Scripture. A disciple, Jason, in chapter 17, was, was dragged out of his house and attacked by a mob simply for being a Christian. Paul, in, in chapter 14, let's look at that one. Paul was beaten to the point of death in Lystra. And he's going to talk about this, but man, just, just listen to what it says. Verse 19 and 20. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, places Paul had been before, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I want you to get this picture, right? This is not just like, hey, they put him in handcuffs and stuck him outside. They threw rocks at him over and over and over until his body did not function. So much so that they looked at him and they said, surely he is dead. They dragged his body out and they left him because they thought he was dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. 
He is physically beaten. He is physically attacked. Why? Because he claims to identify with Christ. He calls himself a Christian. Not only that, they were run out of many different towns. They were chased out of town. I don't know if anybody's ever chased anybody out of Huntington. I'm sure it's happened. Uh, I don't want to know the story right now. But they were run out of many towns. Paul and Barnabas uh, were, were chased out of Antioch and Pisidia. Paul is chased out of Ephesus. So much so because, because of what he's saying, the people just, just run him out. And he is running for his life. Let's look at an example just in chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas were run out of Iconium. In chapter 14, look at verse 1. It says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They're lying about them. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of, I can't pronounce this, Lycaona, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They're arrested, they're beaten, they're run out of towns, and they're killed, some of them. They were killed because of their faith. Look at uh, the examples that we have in Acts are James. James is killed by Herod because he's a leader of the church in chapter 12. And the greatest example is, is Acts chapter 8, uh, or at the end of chapter 7, is Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr. Let's read it in, in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. It says, Now when they heard these things, what Stephen had said, The mob was enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who later becomes Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Some paid the ultimate price. Stephen is the first martyr. He's the first, uh, first Christian to be killed for their faith, for identifying with Christ, for saying, I follow Christ. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he rose from the dead and I believe that he died to save us. That confession is what killed Stephen. And every one of the 12 disciples dies a death that is way uglier than anyone in here wants to imagine, right? Most of them die as martyrs. John dies on an island by himself in exile, and many other Christians throughout human history have been burned at the stake, put on, tor- put on poles to be torches for governors, have been fed to the lions, have been put into gladiator games as, as pawns, and have been killed in all sorts of unimaginable ways. And that continues today, around the world in 2020, during a global pandemic, thousands upon thousands have lost their life simply for identifying with Christ. 
And as I read this, as I think about this, right, you, you read Paul getting stoned to the point of death, and you go, why would you continue? Why do you get up and go back into the city? Why do you go to that next city? Why do you continue to speak boldly for the gospel? Why does the church continue to grow in places where there's massive opposition? Why does, why does this happen? And, and the answer to this question is actually a huge apologetic reason for why Christianity is true. If these 12 men, these apostles, were willing to die for their faith, if they're willing to die for this, if it had been a lie, if it had been something they made up that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus did miracles, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, if it, if it was a lie, one of those 12 was going to break. Let me just say, if I'm one of those 12, I'm breaking first. I know snitches get stitches and all that, but I'm, if it's a lie, I'm not dying for it. I'm not giving up my life for something I made up. And because these 12 men are willing to die for their faith, men don't give their lives for a lie. Men give their lives for the truth. And these 12 men and countless others through history have given their lives because they believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if you have any biblical sense, if we have any biblical sense today, we have to say this, that opposition and persecution will happen. It is a necessary environment for how God builds his church. It's a lie to believe that everything is going to be easy and peasy. We will face opposition. We will face persecution. So let's look at question number two. How did God use this persecution to build the church? Because that seems backwards to us. It seems like, you know, if you, if you push down people, they're going to become less. But the opposite is true. The church grows even in the midst of persecution. So how does it happen? First, persecution led to miracles that led to belief in church growth. We talked about this a few weeks ago with miracles, that God does miracles so that they would believe the word of God. And so as, as people are put in prison or as people are persecuted, God does miraculous things and it leads to belief, and it leads to church growth. Uh, let's look at a few examples. In chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested in Jerusalem uh, for preaching, and it leads to a miracle, which leads to belief, which leads to church growth. Verse 19, chapter 5, it says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This persecution leads to a miracle that leads to belief. Uh, after Peter is arrested in chapter 12, a miracle happens that leads to belief. It says in verse, chapter 12, verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hand. This, this miracle leads to people believing that Jesus is real, that he is really resurrected, and he really is who he said he was, the Son of God. In chapter 16, we've, we referenced it a few times this morning. Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi, and they're in prison. Uh, and a great miracle happens. It leads to belief, and it leads to a church growing in the city of Philippi. Look at chapter 16, verse 26. It says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Uh, 
And the jailer fears for his life because he thinks all the prisoners are going to escape. And so he, he, he calls out and he's going to kill himself. And the prisoners say, no, we're all here, right? And he's been listening to Paul Silas sing and pray all night. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they preach Jesus to him and to his household. And look at verse 34. It says, then he, the jailer, brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Persecution, it led to miracles. It led to God's work in their world. And it gave them resolve to share the gospel and to see the church grow. That's the first way God uses persecution. Second, persecution led to scattering. People were running from persecution. People were running from dying. They're scattering from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just like God had told them to. In chapter 8, after Stephen has been killed, it says in verse 1, it says, And Saul was there and approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse 4, it continues, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In chapter 11, it picks up on this in, in verse 19. Chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And so as persecution comes to Jerusalem, where the church is, is centered and they haven't really spread out from there, persecution comes and it forces them to scatter. Just like Jesus had told them in Acts 1-8 to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It took persecution to actually scatter them to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in fact, this has been a theme throughout the Bible many times, if you think about it. Think about Genesis. God has told them, he's created them, and he's told them to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. And in Genesis, I think it's 11, what do they do? They get together, and instead of spreading out, what do they do? They try to build a tower. We call it the Tower of Babel. Because they want to they be together. They want to they build a tower for their own good. And what does God do? He sends uh, many different languages to scatter them, to force them to do what he had called them to do, which was to scatter and fill the earth with the knowledge of God. God does the same thing with the people of Israel. He brings persecution on them because of their rebellion against him. And they are scattered to nations all around the world. And the effect of that scattering seems so dismal, right? It's like, ah, oh, man, we can't even live where, we, where we're from. We can't, we can't even stay here because it's not safe. But what happened is, is as they went, they proclaimed. That's what he says in, in Matthew 28, as you go, make disciples. So as they are scattered, they make disciples. That's number two. That's the second way God uses it. The third way is about what he did in them. Persecution leads to this resolve. It leads to this, this confidence, this, this resolve that this really is true. So number three, persecution was never a sign to them that they should stop teaching about Jesus. It was never a sign. They didn't, Paul didn't get stoned in Lystra, laying on the ground thinking he's dead and go, you know what? It's really a poor career choice here. 
thinking I may become a lineman or something, right? Like, maybe I should rethink this whole Jesus thing. No, it says he got up and he went back into the city and then he went to Derby and continued his mission. The disciples get out of prison and where do they go? Back to the place where they got arrested. They never once took this as a sign that, man, we must be doing something wrong because things aren't going real well. In chapter 4, the the religious leaders have arrested Peter and John. They've healed a man. They're preaching about Jesus. And they bring him in violently. They question them. They intimidate them. They speak down to them. They inflict them with blows, all sorts of things. But instead of responding like, okay, okay, we'll we'll do what you say. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. We, We won't say Jesus again. How do they respond? Look at chapter 4, verse 19. It says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If this is a lie, this is the moment where they recant. This is the moment where they say, Ha ha, just kidding, like, ha, right? Please let us go. But they don't do that. What do they say? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They didn't take it as a sign. Man, we're doing something wrong. We should maybe tone our language back. We should talk about Jesus a little less. We should soften our words. No, they grew all the more bold. In chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they've been arrested for preaching. And they're questioned by the religious leaders. They're threatened again. And in in verse 28 of chapter 5, it says... The religious leaders said to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Even in the face of persecution, they have resolve. They have this resolve that, No, this is true. This is right. This is what we're supposed to be doing. They don't back down. As you can imagine, the religious leaders don't like this. And it says uh, that they, they beat them and they uh, inflicted blows upon them, right? They, they tore them down. And after they were beaten, it doesn't say they walked away with their tails stuck between their legs, that they, 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 they left Jerusalem out of town. Here's what it says in verse 41. As they're leaving, taking a beating for identifying with Christ. It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left their persecution rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. (laughs) I don't know about you. That's that's amazing. That they would so identify with Christ. And because he was a suffering savior, that they got to participate in that. They go, you know what? This is good. That is convicting and challenging for me in free Huntington, Texas, where I can say anything without fear of what others might think or do. But the results of the persecution And the the environment they lived in led to the growth of the church all throughout the New Testament. This is the story of the book of Acts. It's the story of today that God continues to build his church even in the face of opposition. Even in the face. And yes, we live in the Bible Belt. It is good for business and has been good for business for you to be seen in church. It is. 
it's pretty good for your social standing to come and be in this room on a Sunday morning, right? People think, oh, he must be a nice guy. He goes to church, right? It is, it is good to be identified with Christ in our society. Let me tell you this, that's changing. It's not always going to be true. It's not always going to be true that it's good for business or good for your social standing to identify with Christ. It's not in West Africa. It means persecution. It means isolation. It means who knows what. We don't know yet. That's not always going to be true here. And so we have to reckon with this. And I don't even have time for what I have planned, but that's okay. How do we respond? We may not experience persecution yet, but if we wait to be prepared until it comes, you've waited too late. How do we respond to persecution today? Let me say this before I get to the point. (laughs) I don't think we should seek persecution. There's a difference in getting beat up because you're a jerk and getting beat up because you identify with Christ. We don't seek to break the law. We don't seek after persecution. We're not trying to create enemies. We're not trying to get the world against us. The reality is if you identify with Christ, it will come. So I don't think we seek after this. We see the disciples praying against it, fleeing towns because of it, right? We don't have this example like, ah, you should, if you don't have persecution in your life, then you're doing something wrong. No, that's not true. We should pray against it. We should pray that we remain free. Pray that we can speak boldly for as long as possible. We shouldn't feel guilty that we're in a free country, but we should use that opportunity. We have no excuse compared to those in North Korea, compared to those in Sumatra, compared to those in Somalia and Yemen and all these places around the world who at great cost stand up and say, I identify with Christ. We have freedom. The church should be growing rapidly because we are free to share the good news about Jesus. So how do we respond? How do we respond to persecution? Number one, we stay grounded in God's word in order to build resolve. I'm not going to read it. Man, I just don't have time. I'm, I, I have way too much. I'm sorry. I'm not going to read it. Second Timothy chapter three. There's a whole section in here where Paul is urging the younger Timothy to remain true to God's word, to, to stay true to what he knows in the scriptures that he's been taught with because it's able to equip him for every good work. Paul's instruction to Timothy is no matter what comes, you know what persecutions I endured. You were there. You heard about them. What I, what, that time I got thrown, stones thrown at me until they thought I was dead. You remember that? Yeah, continue on. Stay in God's word. If we're grounded in our feelings, when persecution comes, when, when you don't get the buzz out of worship, when you don't get the, the rah-rah out of the sermon, if you're grounded in your feelings... When persecution comes, those feelings are going to change real fast. And it's not all of a sudden going to feel good to follow Christ. If we're grounded in the cultural context that we live in, that it's good for business and good for social standing to be a Christian, but we don't really care about Christ, if that's our grounding, you're going to be swept away. You're going to be uprooted. If your grounding is not in God's word and the truth, because God's word gives us the resolve to endure, it gives us. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus told us that. There will be a cost. And now this can sound doom and gloom, like, you know, just buck up. Got to do it. It's going to be hard. Let's go, right? But, but actually the reasoning scripturally is this. It's point number two. We have to remember what is ahead. We have to remember what is ahead for us who identify with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. 
He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's been through some suffering. We've read about some of it. And he says, that, that whole stoning thing, that whole shipwreck thing, that whole beatings and lashes, and it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 35, he says, What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is no. None of those things. No matter what we go through, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how socially unacceptable, how, how, how dangerous it is, he says none of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says that what I have in heaven, forgiveness and a relationship with God forever and, and eternity with the Father is so much greater and better that it doesn't even compare to this momentary affliction. If, if our eyes are here on what's happening right in front of us, the persecution, the, the whatever, we're going to forget about what's ahead. He says we have to remember what is ahead for us. We have to remember what is ahead for us who identify with Christ. And lastly, I don't have time, but it's okay. Let's keep going. Number three, he says that we have to learn to be content in Christ in all circumstances. We must learn to be content in Christ in all circumstances. Look at Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, one of the most misquoted scriptures in all the Bible. Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 11. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse doesn't mean that if you quote it, you can squat a thousand pounds or that you can run a marathon without training or that you can pass that test that you didn't study for, right? That's not what this verse means. He doesn't mean that you can do this. You're not a superhero. And we're not witchcraft that we just quote this verse and all of a sudden we can do this. Paul's saying, you know what? I've been through the ringer. I've been brought low. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been, I've been maligned. I've been lied against. I've been, I've been all sorts of things. And I've learned the secret to be content in Christ in every circumstance. That he is worth anything that I go through because of what I get in him, a relationship with God, forgiveness, freedom, that is worth more. We must learn contentment in Christ, not in our circumstances because things are going to be good and things are going to be bad. There's going to be no cost maybe right now to follow Jesus, but one day there will be. And if you don't learn to find your contentment in Christ, not your circumstances, then you will be swept away by persecution. Friends, our only hope is resting in Christ. He is our only hope in life and death. As we finish and the band comes forward, let me, let me just say this. I want to remind us of the gospel. Um, we have a suffering Savior. We need to talk about this with Jesus but think about him, the way that he accomplished, the reason we come in a room and worship and sing praises to God um, is because he suffered, because he went through persecution unjustly, not because of his own self. He, he came to this earth and he died in our place. He died the death that we deserved so we could have the life that, that he deserved. 
And when we believe in that good news, and we place our faith in Jesus, we are identifying with Christ. We are, we are claiming to be what? A Christian, a Christian, a little Christ. And if our master suffered, then we will suffer. If he faced opposition, then we will face opposition. But this doesn't mean that God is not at work. God continues to use persecution, calamity, and success and favor. He uses all those things for what? For his glory, for our good, and the building of his church. Let me pray. If you would, stand with me. We're going to sing a song uh, of response at the end. And if you need to talk to someone, a pastor or something, we will be up here at the front after this song. But let me pray for us right now. God, I pray that we would be grounded in your word. God, not in our feelings, not in the social benefits of Christianity in our free country, God, but I pray that we would be grounded in your word. God, teach us to have contentment in Christ in all circumstances. Teach us to, to remember what is ahead for us so that, that we can see the, the magnitude of what you have done for us in Christ and we, we can see how small this momentary affliction really is. God, I pray that you would give us perspective on any suffering that we face, God, and may we endure. May you give us the strength to do all things, to endure the highs and the lows, the, the favor and the, and the persecution, God. May we find our hope only in you and you alone. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.